I'm Joe Klinzeski, the owner of the Diet Doc, and uh, we have created this program, the Flexible Dieting Institute, as a way to increase awareness and education and the standards of practice within the methodology of flexible dieting. This is not exhaustive. I'm not giving you an entire literature review of every study that's ever been done on this topic. And in this week, talking about fasting, it's even more important to say that because there are so many ways to do it, so many applications. And by fasting, I even include just, just time-restricted eating, meaning you know the space between meals. You don't have to be fasting for a whole day or half a day. can be just having a very defined amount of time between meals. And I'm, I'm going to give you my, my history on on time restricted eating as well as fasting as just an introduction to what what happens physiologically why it may be good for people to have some structure like this where there are longer spans between meals just, just for physiological health and anti-aging but also you know where it kind of fits into culture you know specifically if you are a a competitive athlete or you're a competitive physique sport um, you know, athlete, or you're somebody just trying to lose some body fat and stay healthy. There are all kinds of ways to, to apply this. And I want to make sure that, that everybody understands it, it's not just a, a binary situation. It's, it's, it's not that you either do it or you don't. There are all kinds of ways to, to, to cut this up and, and use it. So when, uh, when I was kind of developing my chops as a nutrition consultant, it was going through school in the 90s, and that that was a big era for the Body for Life crowd. So if you remember back then, it became very popular for even the general population to eat like a bodybuilder. Uh, everybody, you know, even general population people, um, you know, homemakers, accountants, nurses, everybody, all of a sudden were eating six meals a day you know, you know, with protein in every single meal. And it was, it was a very bodybuilderish time that brought back the whole phenomena of, of just, you know, smaller, more frequent meals. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call it grazing, but it was, it was definitely intentional meals every three hours. And to this day, some people just still almost set their watch to that. And, and every three hours, it's time to eat. Well, of course, when you're talking about culture and marketing and, and just trying to build any notoriety, wherever the pendulum is at, at one point in time, you know it's going to go back in the other direction in some way or some fashion. So if all of a sudden, you know, people are all talking about smaller, more frequent meals, wh where is the only place that pendulum can swing? And so, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, here we are, and everybody's now doing intermittent fasting. Now everybody says, oh, you don't need to eat protein every three hours. Oh, that's ridiculous. You don't have to eat six meals a day. Now it's like you should just eat two meals a day or three meals a day. And as with most, most topics, you know, there's some truth to each side and there's, there are some ways to apply it. But I also had at that time been going through my, my doctorate in nutrition and I had to take a class called medical fasting. And they, they didn't require us to do this, but they strongly, you know, urged us to participate how we would want. And I decided I would do a one day a week fast. And uh, just, just in the last couple of years, uh, a big survey, kind of a meta-analysis in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the, the study I'm going to review today, you know, gave some definitions of what it means to fast and, and fasting one day a week or two days a week, you know, non, um, you know, together. I mean, it's like fasting, like on a, on a Monday and a Thursday or something are methods that, that a lot of medical professionals use, or, you know, even, um, you know, I, I, I guess there are probably some registered dietitians who, who dabble in, in different types of therapeutic fasting. But, but that's, that's kind of a common formula. Uh, the most extreme is to do every other day fasting. And I'm going to go through a little bit of, of research or a little bit of review in terms of how some of these anti-aging propositions came about and, and what other people have tried as, as anecdotal case studies. 
But I, I want you to think in, in two different lanes. I want you to think, you know, what is it really doing physiologically when I time restrict my, my, my food intake in any way or extend that even to fasting? What's happening physiologically? What's happening to the cells in my body? Is it really increasing longevity, improving health? And then how can I apply that to my specific goals? And particularly, I know a lot of people listening are, are going to be bodybuilders and physique sport people. And you're going to immediately think, well, you know, that's, that's going to be harmful. It's going to cost me some lean body mass or some, some metabolic capacity to do that. And the interesting thing, when, when you contrast that to why keto has become so popular, because keto and fasting overlap quite a bit, which I'm going to talk about, they always try to contend the opposite. They always like to say, no, 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 no. Keto is, is, is much more anabolic because testosterone is a cholesterol derived hormone, blah, 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 blah. And no matter how many times somebody says that, no matter, no matter how many ways they spin it, it's just not true. You, you, if, if you do time restricted eating in any capacity, it is going to be less anabolic. There are some health values that we're going to get to that even some value to your training and performance, but you're still giving up a little bit of a cost. It's not as much as you would think. So I'm going to get into that, but, but those are the two pathways you need to think through what's really happening physiologically. Does it help me in any way? Are those the principles that I want to start integrating into my life? And then how do I do that based on my specific goals, especially performance wise? So let's, let's talk about first the, the, the premises that, that kind of spurred this whole thing. Uh, well over a hundred years ago, people were already talking about fasting for medical use. Uh, a couple of researchers actually documented the regression of tumor growth in cancer patients with fasting. You know, we didn't have chemotherapy. We didn't have things like that. So they were looking at medical therapeutic ways to, to battle cancer. And they, they found that that was the case. Like, wow, if we restrict eating, but of course, cancer is a very catabolic phenomena. So in the end stages, you know, not eating there's, that's a, that's a double-sided coin there. You know, you can, you can actually starve yourself to death while you're starving cancer cells. But, but all of that aside for a moment, this has been something looked at for a super long time. And even up to modern medicine, it was supposed that the benefit of fasting came because of reduced free radical activity. We know that the oxidation uh, effects when you're, when you're consuming food, your, your cells have to metabolize that food, waste products and, and metabolic byproducts are created. And that's that that creates free radicals, that free radical damage in your body. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're they weren't totally off. That that's not the model that that we think about today with fasting, but that still has some benefit. Uh, do, do you guys know what uh, what telomeres are? Have you heard that term telomere? So inside of every cell, of course, you have the DNA, and and every cell replicates itself. That cell has to divide itself in half because it's going to die. And you guys know, like red blood cells only live for, you know, maybe four to 24 hours. Skin cells may live for one to seven days. So all of our cells are constantly regenerating. The telomeres are the ends of chromosomes. So almost like if you, if you think of like a gel cap, like if you're taking a, a capsule with a supplement inside, like, like a powder, you know, the ends, think of those ends of the capsules as, as much, much thicker. And those protect the chromosomes, protect the DNA. Every time that cell divides and, and replicates itself, those telomeres get a little bit smaller, get a little bit thinner. And every time that cell divides, you only get so many cell divisions and that's what causes aging. Eventually those cells can't divide anymore and that's, that's why you die that, or that's why you get certain diseases and certain organ systems and so forth, because you've, you've run out of replicatability. Now, as I said, those, those lifespans of cells have, have ages. And so if a red blood cell can last for 24 hours, but on average they replicate after four hours, 
why do you think they replicate after four hours? Because there's so much oxidative damage, so many free radical hits. Cells can take up to 10,000 free radical hits a day. So these reactive oxygen species are flowing through the body, zipping around, tearing things up. And that, that free radical damage, you know, adds up. That's what causes aging. So if we're so healthy that our cells can live a little bit longer at the cellular level, that is how you are quite literally extending your age. So some of these studies on, on withholding food, on fasting decades ago, you know, really started catching people's attention. And they did these with, with mice, with rats, with primates, and then they started doing human studies. And they have found that by restricting calories, and this, this varies widely, varies widely between species, between sexes, between you know, people with different activity levels, but from five to 80% increase in longevity. And, and the rough average is about a 30% increase. So the way this looks in studies, if you reduce your calories by 30% and you just stayed there, you can roughly expect to extend your life about 30%. And, and they saw this in, in a lot of these studies in primates and rodents. And so people started trying this. And I remember a little you know, documentary article. I think this couple was in, in Britain, but they had done that. They had taken their calories down by a certain percent. And just like you would if you were dieting, but you never come out of that. You just stay there. So of course, you're forcing your body to metabolically adapt. These are not Olympic athletes. These are not bodybuilders scrounging for every ounce of muscle. These are people who just wanted to be as healthy as they could and, you know, live long, high quality lives. And so, uh, you know, they worked out, they, they did everything to be healthy and you look at them and they were just rail thin. I mean, obviously they had, you know, they're, they're not starving themselves to death, but they are perpetually eating 30% or fewer calories than their body actually needs, forcing their bodies to downregulate metabolically to sustain that. And you would think, wow, what a horrible way to live. But just like when you become keto adaptive, your body does you know, treat that as its new norm. And so for them, they're not any hungrier than you or I would be. And yet they're, they're literally extending their life, you know, barring any, any tragedy or something. And so that's kind of the goal for some people, but now let's, let's talk about, you know, what's, what's really happening under the hood because they, you know, researchers have, have seen uh, improvements in everything. And I'm going to get to the physiology, but just with a broad stroke really quick, you know, obviously you're going to reduce your risk of, of obesity. You're going to reduce your risk of diabetes and heart disease and so forth. But even things like asthma, you know, think of what's happening with COVID right now. The, the report that just came out from the World Obesity Forum saying that countries, countries where 50% or more of their population is overweight have 10 times the death due to COVID. So extra body weight creates so much systemic inflammation. And that's, that's really the bottom line. I mean, if I, if I could give you one whole theme sentence to this topic, it's systemic inflammation. And so pe people who have asthma and, and lung related diseases, as soon as they start creating any kind of a fasting state, and if you're in a calorie deficit, just dieting, you, you are creating a, a a fasting state to some level. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about how we get into actual structured fasting, but, but just being in a calorie deficit gets you in the ball game. Uh, but one of the other things that may surprise people is that fasting states or time restricted eating uh, even reduces the risk of neurogenic diseases. So one of the reasons and one of the overlaps that I said that ketogenic dieting and fasting has is that we know that fasting, or I should say, I'm sorry, ketogenic dieting is phenomenal for people with, with seizures, if you have epilepsy of any form. And, and that's not just because you're getting rid of carbs, it's because your calories are lower. 
you're reducing that that C reactive protein. And there are neurotransmitters, enzymes, proteins in your body that when you're under the stress of tons of oxidation due to constant eating or using carbohydrates, you know, all the time, then, then you're at a little bit higher state of, of systemic inflammation and your brain is very susceptible to that. And that's why even people who have demyelinating conditions like MS, if they start fasting or they start reducing carbohydrates and, and increase fat a little bit, that's, that can be very helpful. So anybody who knows me should be thinking, man, Joe's getting really close to almost endorsing low carb, high fat ketogenic diets. Like this is, this is like, he's giving all the benefits of that. And, and I, I don't want you to misconstrue that, that there's this overlap between ketogenic dieting and, and fasting. So no, I would never say keto is the way to go for, for long-term weight management and so forth. But when you time restrict your food, you're probably going to reduce carbohydrates to some degree. And let me, let me get into some of, the, some of the applications, and then I'll come back and fill in some of the gaps of the physiology. So let, let's say that you just wanted to try this. I mentioned that just being in a calorie deficit gets you in the ballgame. You know, you're, you're already fasting to some degree. But now if you decide that you're going you're gonna to work on meal timing and meal spacing, it's not just restricting calories and it's not just flexible dieting where, hey, if I'm hungry, I'll eat. If I'm not, I won't. And, you know, every day can be whatever I want it to be. But really adding some bones to your dieting, to your meal planning to say, okay, I'm going to intentionally eat at these times for these reasons. You, you guys know that the, the classic model today for intermittent fasting is that eight and 16 hour window where you only eat in an eight hour window and you fast for 16 hours. Even my contractor this morning working on my, my bathroom at our, at our new studio, uh, when, when he pulled me aside, literally just met this guy at seven o'clock this morning by 11 o'clock in the morning with him just kind of looking around at what we do and seeing, seeing, you know, my book on the counter. He's like, you know, Hey, can I, can I ask you a question? you know, what do you think about fasting? Met this guy four hours earlier and he's already asking about fasting because that's just how hot it is in culture right now as a topic. And, and his wife had worked with a nutrition coach. She actually has some, some kidney, some nephrology issues. And, and so this was, this was a medical referral. And so they were doing some other things, but part of that was she was, she was told she should do some intermittent fasting. Um, and you know, um, what, what serendipity, right? Like this, this, this conversation happens an hour before I'm doing a live stream on fasting. So I was able to give him, you know, the link and he could shoot it home to his wife and all that. So, uh, I don't know his last name. His first name is Riley. So if, if Mrs. Riley sees this, um, you know, it was, it was just great. Your, your husband's amazing, by the way. Good, great guy. Good to meet him. Can't wait for him to come back and, and finish up our bathroom. But when you guys decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add some more structure, you don't have to do that eight and 16 hour window. There is a lot of value just by extending things out a little bit further. And physiologically, that's what you should do to acclimate. So even these researchers who are doing this meta-analysis in the New England Journal of Medicine, they said, you know, first of all, most physicians have no idea what they're doing with nutrition. They're not going to prescribe anything this specific. So they're, they're trying to lay this article, this, this analysis out for them to understand and give them options. So, so this is a journal that physicians are going to read, you know, particularly general practice physicians. And they're just trying to give some ideas to them. And they said, okay, if you have eight to uh, 12 hours of, uh, Matthew, if you can hear me, we'll need you to mute there if you can. I'll grab that real quick. So you have, um, any, anytime you haven't been eating for eight hours or so, depending on your context, you can see a change in, in ketone bodies. So in other words, 
it's not just because you're eating fewer carbs. It's because you're running out of blood products to use as energy. We use blood lipids or fatty acids as energy. We obviously use blood sugar. You can use blood amino acids. You can use anything. And as soon as you get into a state where there's nothing left in your GI system to start loading into the bloodstream, you get into this catabolic process where you have to harvest energy. And, and there's, there's something called a metabolic switch. This is the big thing of intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. Outside of looking at the free radical damage and, and you know, that being a cause, and, and that, was, that was the model for decades, when they started looking at, well, maybe it's something else, they stumbled upon the, the whole concept of the metabolic switch. When, when your body is used to using glucose as energy, which is every cell's primary preferred source of energy, when that's no longer available, you've even depleted the, the, the liver glycogen that's accessible, then you have to go into deeper stores of energy, which will include body fat, but you will also start using amino acids as energy to a small degree. That, that's why in aggressive fasting or aggressively low calorie diets, you will never have quite as much lean body mass. But there's a basement to that. This is this is one point I, I, I don't want anybody who's in physique sport or performance sport to be afraid of this because your body gets very, very acclimated and actually smarter at what it catabolizes and what it doesn't. So when you're constantly in a fed state where every meal, every two, three hours you're eating, sometimes your stomach's not even empty and you're pouring more food into it. You just go on and on and on. You're in a high inflammatory, high systemic inflammation state. You're constantly using glucose as energy. You never flip that metabolic switch to have to start autolyzing or this, this, this autophagic process where you're actually catabolic. We hear that term catabolic and we think, oh, that's something to stay away from. That's awful. You never want to be catabolic. Well, actually, that's not true. If you want to live longer and be healthier, you want your body to be very, very good at anabolism and very, very good at catabolism, very smart and strategic. And this only happens when you train your body to be very good at this metabolic switch. If, if, if you don't do that, that's when you just kind of, for lack of a better term, gum up the system and you're constantly in this, this anabolic state of just storage, 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 which means hyper, you know, cholesterolemia. It means, you know, body fats being stored. It's why 70% of people in the United States are overweight or obese. We obviously are not spending very much time toggling back and forth with that metabolic switch. What intermittent or time-restricted fasting does is makes you use up all the food you consume Steve Dodd used a great analogy, you know, just like, you know, emptying the, 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 the gas tank of your car before you fill it up. You don't, you don't fill up your gas tank, you know, every 30 miles. It's, it's you wait till you're almost empty, get rid of all that old gas. So, so that's a good metaphor for using up all the glucose, all the cholesterol, all the lipids in your bloodstream and, and really cleaning out the system and you get that metabolic switch and, and that's what starts heightening all the cells and the receptors to actually be better at their jobs. And so when I say your body can become even more strategic at those autolytic processes, that's part of the disease prevention. That's part of why even neurogenic disease and things like asthma are reduced because your body is catabolizing all of the waste. You don't catabolize heart muscle tissue you don't catabolize neurons in your brain. You don't catabolize anything you need, but you get rid of so much more cellular waste and toxicity that then the, the good you know, mitochondrial functions of every cell work better. And that's one of the things they note when people are well-practiced at time-restricted eating, that you can even test the, the mitochondria in every single cell and those, those are the, the powerhouse, you know, sources of energy in every single cell. They are better at what they do. They act like younger, newer cells or, or you know, mitochondria within those cells. 
And this is an important part of these long-term benefits. So these, these researchers writing for the physicians and teaching them how to explain this and carry this out with, with patients, you know, they would say, look, just, just start working on increasing some time between meals. You know, so, so get some patients if they're, if they're eating every three hours to eat, you know, every four hours, you know, maybe get them to the point where they're eating, um, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner six hours apart. So it's just three meals a day, just increasing those amount of times where you're not mindlessly grabbing food or a snack every time you're hungry. And this is what I advocate to all of my clients in terms of tracking macros accurately, you know, keeping your behavior aligned with your goals the first and best way to do that is to structure those meals and say, this is my feeding time. I'm not going to deviate. And if I do have to deviate, it's not, it's, it's not going to be where I go grab a, a Snickers bar or something. It's going to be, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to eat my next meal a little bit sooner because I'm just starving or my schedule works out. If I don't eat now, I won't be able to eat for another four hours. There are all kinds of ways to implement flexibility, even with time-restricted eating, but it's having those goals and that new baseline as an operational you know, dictum. And then when you have to deviate, that's the exception to the rule. So what happens when you start doing that is, is you, you start increasing your, your receptor uh, sensitization. So the sensitivity, we talked about insulin and things like that. It's not the insulin that causes the problem. It's, it's the, the receptor site affinity being so degraded that often causes the problem. <clears throat> so you can have these larger meals where you're going to be releasing insulin, <clears throat> but again, your body is better at disposing of that. Glucose disposal is a big concept. So, so the next two or three phases, and this is where I want to challenge anybody here who would like to do this, is first of all, if you're already in a calorie deficit, you know, you're, 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 you're really probably halfway there. You know, your body is acclimated to entering that metabolic switch. You don't lose any body fat without engaging that switch. So I've, I've mentioned to you guys that my weight has basically been the same for the last five years. And then I decided, you know, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to I'm in the mood to lose a little weight. And so I, I decided in December, right after Thanksgiving, actually, I'm going to start losing. So I've lost about 10 to 12 pounds in those three months. And that means after five years of being totally stable, now I've on a daily basis, meal to meal basis, I've been engaging that metabolic switch enough that in between meals, I'm catabolizing body fat and body fat stores and so forth. So, so you guys are already there. It's just now how far can you take it and why? So I, when I, when I engaged in that, um, that medical fasting class and I, and I said, I would, I would start fasting one day a week. It was dinner to dinner because it sounded awful to me to like wake up not eat anything for a whole day and go to sleep having not eaten like that just sounded intolerable that that actually becomes almost like a 36 hour fast and and the the quote assignment was like 24 hours so i i thought i was kind of cheating the system by by fasting dinner to dinner so i could at least just wake up eat nothing have a nice normal dinner and i get to go to go to bed with you know without feeling like i'm i'm hungry well, in fact, that's that's how they teach, you know, one day fasting is, is if, if you reduce somebody down to five to 700 calories a day with just one meal in that 24 hour window. So just as I would do have a five to 700 calorie dinner, then then you get all of the impact of, of what they would call an intermittent fast or a one day per week fast. So remember, for some health reasons or for some research projects or for some health complications, some doctors or researchers say, you know, the ultimate goal would be to fast every other day. You know, maybe you have three meals one day and then like no food at all the next day, three meals the next day. And, and then, of course, all the way back to just two days a week or one day a week. But here, here's why that's important. You guys have heard me rail against this type of thinking. 
well, Paleolithic man 40,000 years ago ate this way. So that's how we should eat today. Well, to try and anthropomorphize an entire lifestyle from back then that has nothing to do with today, just because that's how they ate is by far the worst way you could think about that. But if you think that, that bipedal hominids have been around for about 2 million years from Homo erectus, Homo erectus to Homo sapiens and so forth. And in our current iteration is, is a, a couple hundred thousand to maybe a million years old. That's a lot of time to have evolved into the kind of organ systems we have now. Then you flash forward to a hundred years of mass eating, processed flour, processed sugar, everything's in a wrapper. 75% of our population dies early due to obesity. Compare that 100 year span to the previous 2 million years. That, that's why all these disease processes are so catastrophic to us. Our bodies are not built to eat like that. We, we are still more acclimated to that hunter-gatherer type style of eating where you don't get to eat everything you want in perfectly measured meals every three hours, but, but our bodies are, are still used to having you know, long stretches of eating and, and then you know, having a certain amount of meal and long stretches of eating. So it just works better for our health and longevity to have some spans of time where we're not constantly pounding food down our throats. You know, that, that's why down to the cellular level, what they found in the most current research is that when you start engaging in any kind of time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, you get an accumulation of results. Your cells, you know, almost 100 trillion cells in your body don't just start replicating slower where those telomeres aren't shedding quite so often, meaning you're extending the life of your cells, which means you're extending your actual life. That doesn't happen because you just, you know, missed breakfast one day, said, okay, you know, I did it, I'm done. It takes cumulative acclimation from your body to start saying, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. Now the cells become better and better at using the nutrients when they have them and then smartly autolyzing that the toxins and, and the byproducts, metabolic byproducts when you're in a state of fasting. So when, when, when anybody would start to do this within about four months, it's almost like this is why I said there's so much overlap with, with keto versus fasting. It, it takes three or so months to become, you know, very much keto adapted. You know, you're way more keto adapted at the three month mark than the one week mark. Same thing here. When you just start practicing, extending your meal times a little bit and whatever pattern you develop three to four months from that point, you're going to be a whole different biological organism. You're going to, you're going to have reset so many genes and, and, and so many signaling agents in your body in those cells to just be healthier. And again, to, you know, to, to promote anti-aging, you know, to the point where, where the new kind of theory of everything for fasting is just the fact that every single cell, when it's not so overworked by metabolizing food is, is just simply what's called stress resistant. Those genes that can be signaled can be turned on or off for certain kinds of cancer they're not signaled, you know, because you're not getting that overwhelming systemic inflammation. Um, you know, the, the, again, the telomere splitting and, and replicating and all that, all of that stuff slows down. And, and again, there's that cost, right? You're, you're literally slowing down the metabolic processes, but it's not like fasting and never coming out of it. Whatever, like I said, whatever type of eating you get yourself into you, you improve that state and then you fortify it. So, so let's say that I get down to a certain level of body fat and I'm not necessarily going to stay in that calorie deficit. I, I'm not going to be like that British couple that you know, I'm not going to go down to 1200 calories and never come back up. I personally would rather die sooner. Like give me a, give me a stroke. I, I want some ice cream once in a while. 
So I'm, I'm never going to go that far with my health values, but having had this experience with fasting, I, I'm really encouraged after doing this little literature review I've done this week to, to do that again. I've, I've got a couple clients right now who have started doing one day a week fast, those 24 hour fasts with good results. They like it. They said, yeah, I feel fine now. It was, it was kind of weird the first week or two, and now I don't even notice it. And that's truly part of that physiological adaptation. And, and it's almost like meditation. You know, whenever somebody's really stressed out, that's when they start downloading an app like to meditate and they lay down and they meditate for five minutes and they think that's gonna cure all their problems. It's, it's the person who has been meditating for six months and, and you've changed the neurons in your brain, you've changed your entire mindset. Those are the people who are resilient to anxiety and depression and so forth. Fasting or intermittent feeding is, is the same. It's a matter of getting into you know, that, that mindset of saying, well, I don't have to put food in my mouth every time I feel a hunger pang. I, I, even if I'm maintaining my weight, I'm not even in a diet right now, I'm just going to maintain some structure where I, I intentionally only eat at certain intervals because I want every single cell in my body to be healthier long-term. Uh, the, the last story that I'll, I'll mention here, and then, then I'll turn it over to some questions. Uh, I, I've told this story many, many, many times, but, but I saw Jack LaLanne when he was 91 or 92 years old. I was out in California. He was given a lecture and, and, you know, he's Jack LaLanne. So you expect him to be jumping around on stage doing, you know, jumping jacks and push-ups and all that kind of thing at 92 years old, which he was doing. But what I didn't know until that day is for the last couple of decades, he had only eaten two meals a day. He would eat breakfast at 11 a.m., dinner at 7 p.m. It included like a huge, dense, you know, protein smoothie with all kinds of nutrients and so forth and probably some other food because if you're only eating twice a day, those meals can be a little bit bigger, of course. And, you know, again, it's, it's an anecdotal story. Doesn't mean that that's, you know, the most valid research. But, but here's a guy who had been physically active and healthy and as part of his normal regimen, you know, was a, a, a very structured meal planning type, type you know, phenomena. And, and it obviously worked very well for him. So that's, that's basically all I wanted to at least present as a starting point. And then hopefully you guys have some great questions. So feel free to raise your hands or just unmute and fire away. Steve Dodd, you got to have some questions for us to lead us off. Since Steve's not taking off, I'll take off here, Joe. All right, Dan. First of all, Austin, uh, I really love your uh, interview with uh, Coach Joe on Contest Prep University. Hmm. Uh, I you. really got a lot out of that one, so thanks for that. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate yeah, that. That was great. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Joe, my question is, uh, when does uh, uh, meal spacing become detriment to muscle building. Uh, is there a certain time when uh, the health benefits actually uh, don't outweigh uh, the anabolic benefits that a bodybuilder is looking for? Yes, um, but it's not quite as much as you would think. So I'm going to I'm, I'm not going to get this word for word, but the, the former president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, Dr. Bill Campbell, who you know from his social media, um, when he was president of the ISSN, he, he did a literature review of meal timing. And, and when you look at an isocaloric study, he said, we could not find any difference between two meals a day and seven meals a day. And, and again, when you're looking at research, it kind of matters how you do the methodology. And so when you, when you say that you don't see any difference between two meals and seven, it's plus or minus a, you know, kilo or two of lean body mass or body fat. It's, it's a statistical, you know, standard deviation difference. And, and so again, with isocaloric nutrition, you know, that's, that's the ball game. You know, we always talk about calories per day or calories per week as a unit of measurement we don't have to break it down necessarily all the way down to meals 
per day, but just, you know, food, how much food was in that day. So I personally, this is mostly anecdotal, but when I say anecdotal, realize that comes with 25 years of working with tens of thousands of clients. So there's, there are a lot of anecdotes to my anecdotal base. And I think most people who are training really hard and they're trying to spare lean body mass, I think we do better when we get up to four or five meals a day, but you can still create a window. And most of us do, you know, most of us know, Hey, after six or seven o'clock at night, I'm going to try not to eat again. I want my stomach to be empty when I go to bed. Like, like we intuitively create some of those rules for ourselves and we read about them. I mean, some people teach that. Doesn't mean you have to, you, you also know that you can have some protein right before bed and there are way you can still get lean and do this well. But when you want the, all of the anti-aging benefits I'm talking about, just the fact that you are as lean as you are, that's 90% of the ball game. When you really start then worrying about how do I space out my meals and should I try some of this fasting type stuff? If you're already that lean, you've just got that much of the benefit already in tow. So I think, you know, even on days that you train, Dan, and you think, okay, I got to have a little bit of energy pre-workout. I definitely want post-workout nutrition and recovery to, to be hitting that sweet spot. I know I need some food at the other end of the day. You know, you're already into probably four eating times just to feel human. So I really feel like four or five in a hard working, you know, diet is, is, is kind of critical. But I also know on days when I'm not training, I can eat twice a day and be fine. You know, I mean, I do that all the time on the weekends. I'll, I'll eat breakfast and then I don't even come back in the house until dinner, you know, because I'm out working in the yard or something. So again, you're talking about tiny, tiny changes or maybe losses of lean body mass potential if you got crazy. But I think just because you're lean enough, you know, you could still eat three, four, five times. And then on the days you're not training, you know, that's when you can create some distance. But I, I personally, I, I'm going to start doing my time restricted eating my one day of fast. I always liked doing it on Mondays, you know, back when I was in school for this class. And I'm going to do that again, and I'm just not going to train on Mondays. Yeah, I, I don't want that to be a training day. I'm just going to, and that works out for me too, because Mondays are my big days. So now that saves me an hour and a half. I'm not training. Uh, oh, matter of fact, another, another uh, point of benefit, the longer you do time-restricted eating, where you have these planned amounts of time between meals, no matter how you do it, how low you go, how far apart you go, just getting acclimated to that Every study from rodents to primates to, to us, you know, humans had substantial increases of cognitive ability, your memory increases, your sharpness, your ability to focus and concentrate, your ability to actually, you know, recall things for tests and so forth. So, um, so on Mondays, when I start fasting, all of my clients are going to get way better answers from me because I'm going to be so much sharper. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks, Joe. You are welcome. Any, any more questions? I just wanted to say that um, for the clients that I work with, and mostly my male clients seem to do well with the intermittent fasting. Um, I would say that one of the things that intermittent fasting has done for um, those clients are they used to pick at food all day long. And by implementing the intermittent fasting, that's kind of curb that whole behavior of going over the calories. Um, so I think it's beneficial. I'm always on the proponent of uh, using intermittent fasting um, for lower calories. It's interesting to hear about the benefits from a standpoint of health concerns, which we always assume that a lot of the things like cancer and epilepsy and some of those states, we always kind of contribute to sugars from carbohydrates and, and how they can affect that. So it's interesting to hear. I would say that I, every time I go um, into dieting and get um, closer to the stage, I always implement um, intermittent fasting because the first few times that I prep for shows, I was doing the five or six meals a day. And when you, your meals are only 
200 calories, you're just food focused the entire day. You eat your meal in a minute. And then you're like, when do I get the next meal? And all your hunger signals fire at like two and a half hours and sharp stomach pains and stuff. And so that kind of curbs a lot of those, those behaviors um, that I think helps you be dialed more in when you're closer to the stage and less calories when you can have larger meals. Um, so I, I see the efficacy of that. I'm wondering about the protein synthesis because I know one of the things the 3DMJ team are like, hey, it could be beneficial, but, and it doesn't hurt. So you do things that could be beneficial and they don't hurt you and talking about more protein feedings throughout the day versus less protein feedings. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, so everything always has a pro and a con in terms of, um, you know, th those kind of extremes. So, so when, when we started comparing eating protein six or seven times a day, what we found out was, you know, you get so uh, acclimated to that, your liver, your liver amino acid pool, that all of a sudden, just like any drug, you know, like, like if, if you take 200 milligrams of caffeine a day for a week, that's your new zero. Now you need 200 just to not feel like, like shit, you know, so you go up to 400 and pretty soon you're at 800. So with, with protein synthesis, what researchers have found is that when you eat 30, 40 grams every three hours, you just use less of it. It's like having too much calcium, you know, in your diet, all of a sudden you're only absorbing 10% of it. The rest is being excreted. So there's a lot of wasted protein and amino acids and now you're, you're desensitizing your receptors to that. So that, that's part of that autophagic process. Your mitochondria, your cells getting, getting used to having to be better at utilizing nutrients. So if you do have a six hour window, you're not eating, and then you eat again, you become almost super anabolic. And, and, and when you look over time, that's why people who do engage in, in some kind of time-restricted eating, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying like you have to fast one day a week or you can only eat two or three hours or you have to have an eight-hour window. I'm anti all of that structure just for the sake of structure. You have to pick the structure that works for you. And then I would say, test it, you know, do blood chem panels, see, see how you feel. Every time I do changes like this, I'm getting you know, DEXA scanned, you know, backwards and forwards. I used to get hydrostatically weighed all the time, you know, just to test, you know, lean body mass gain or loss. And when I did my first master's thesis on protein intake requirements, I only ate 75 grams of protein a day for six months, not 74, not 76. I ate 75 grams of protein a day for six months. And I did not lose any lean body mass. And I was, a, I was a pro bodybuilder at the time, actually dieting for a contest. So in those six months, I lost 15 pounds of body fat. And my hypothesis was obviously the opposite. I'm a young, dumb bodybuilder, and I'm trying to prove to my professors that the RDA is stupid and we need more protein. And what I proved is that, no, the RDA is pretty good. Like, that's all we need. I didn't lose any lean body mass, even in a catabolic, overtrained state. So, you know, those are the kind of things, Tracy, that I think are important to compare in ourselves, as well as being at least, you know, somewhat familiar with, with the research out there with, with other larger groups. I'd love to hear more uh, information as you get deeper into uh, utilizing the intermittent fasting with your clients and seeing how that results. I know that a lot of, you know, the work as coaches were using anecdotes and observations um, because even with the, the best research, sometimes people are actually, everybody's a unique individual. So they have different metabolism. They have different capabilities. I think the only other thing uh, for my clients that I, I have one client who's doing the intermittent fasting, he'll be like, I didn't eat all my calories because my window closed. I said, look, it's a tool. Don't <laughs> allow the tool right. to dictate. And if you get hungrier earlier, like, and so I think of one of the, you know, you're talking about it being a hot, hot topic. And I'm always like, look, if the tool doesn't work for you and you're not eating all your calories and you're adjusting your metabolism because you're not eating your calories, I say, it's not a good tool for you. Or if you're like, I was super hungry and I held off and then I binge ate and I was like, okay, you're, the tool's not working for you. You have to figure out how to make that, that work because 
at the end of the day, you know, everything that we talk about is efficacy. Why are we using it? What's the point of it? If you're using it for, you know, your health considerations, then it's a good tool and you should investigate. If you're using it for weight loss, it's not what results in the weight loss, but it can be a tool to use. And so understanding the efficacy of when you're talking about the topics and how you're utilizing it, because I think that that's one of the things that for the general population, the general population is I lost calorie, I lost weight because I was doing intermittent fasting, not I lost weight because I was in a calorie deficiency. So I think it's uh, talking about it as a tool and how you can implement it for your specific lifestyle and purpose. But understanding that if it starts to work against you with like binge eating or you're trying to stay in a window, but you're hungry or it's causing you to eat more food because you're not listening to what your body's, then it becomes a tool that works against you for your overall success, I think. For sure. Uh, Steve, before you jump in, I see you unmuted. I want to I want to just say something that I think I think Tracy's point of it really changing hunger is huge. You know, I spent a lot of time talking about the physiology and the anti-aging, what's happening with cellular respiration, all that. But truly, you know, you when you become that much more efficient and, and your cells are acclimated to utilizing that metabolic switch back and forth, you definitely lose those cues. It, it's somebody who's eating constantly, grazing, that is always hungry, and you're reinforcing that hunger by every time you feel that little hunger, you quote, reward yourself with food. It's really funny, but I did this with my grandson last night. So uh, for those of you guys who haven't seen my 8 trillion pictures on Facebook, I do have a, my first grandchild. Uh, he's four months old. And as firstborns are, you know, the mom and the dad tend to kind of cater to every little whimper. And every time the baby is uncomfortable, you want to you have that instinct to take care of them. So, so he's kind of cranky and this kid is so hyperactive. Like he just never wants to sit still. He's always got to be up and moving, got to carry him around. And so he was getting pretty tired. Uh, it's time for bed, but he, you, you could tell he wanted to eat. Like that's almost the habit that my daughter has started with him is to give him a little bit of food to make him sleepy and then he'll go down. So I said, no, 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 you guys, you guys go sit down, give, give them to me. So I, I take him, you know, and I'm holding him and I'm, you know, he's crying a little bit and I just go lay down on our bed with him. And he's just in a rage. Like, and I can tell, like, he, this is not his routine. He's used to getting a bottle and then going to bed. And, and within 30 seconds, you know, his cries start coming down, coming down. And pretty soon he's just looking at me. We're just like nose to nose in the dark. And he's looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with you? I'm, you're supposed to feed me. Like, that's the deal. I cry, you feed me, then I go to sleep. And, uh, you know, and after a cup, you know, maybe another 30 seconds, he fell asleep. You know, first time maybe in his whole life that that's kind of broken the cycle. And, and that's going to help train his physiology that, you know, hey, you know, you'll, you'll utilize nutrients better by not consuming all of that food all the time whenever you want it. And, and that's how you get children to start sleeping through the night. It's almost counterintuitive, but you start increasing their, their, you know, windows between meals and, and that acclimates them to be able to get through the night to do that. And, and we're the same way. We're just, you know, bigger babies. And so we have to kind of teach our physiology to do that. But uh, anyway, Steve, what were you going to say? Well, I mean, I always heard that any time you went to bed with anybody, they fell asleep right away. Nice, nice. No, I got well, something for well Dan played. too. I want to really thank Dan for his little input about the pro physique. Uh, so, because of Dan, I eighty percent of my staff is gone, and I have to intermittent fast because of finances for the next thirty days. So, thanks, Dan. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the real question, a couple questions, uh, series which. Um, Someone that, that is consistently adapted to regular three, four-hour interval eating and then hitting an intermittent fast, for me, I'd be flat on the floor. Uh, it, it just My blood sugar would just bottom out. I know that over time, that would start to migrate to be better, but what, what would you do in a situation like that? It's question one. Question two is, uh, medication that almost puts you in an intermittent fast, like Adderall. 
I had got prescribed Adderall and I took it in the morning. Mm-hmm. Not hungry all day. Yeah. And how does that affect you differently on a health standpoint? Also, I mean, I know some things that's not healthy about it, but on a standpoint of health and all the things you're talking about, about the cells and so forth, being a medication that's causing that. And then I struggled for a long time when I started taking it, just eating so much food late that started noticing weight gain. Um, don't think I haven't been logging, so I don't know the total calorie consumption, you know, after eight, seven to 12 PM that I was eating, but I can't imagine that I was consuming that much more than normal. But, um, what's your thoughts on those two things? So first of all, it's, you know, I'm going to go back to the way I described my own breaking into a calorie deficit. I've not dieted for five years. I start dieting. And my mindset is that I don't even know where to take food away because I'm already hungry all the time. Like when it's time for that meal or snack, I can't imagine reducing food. That's just how unpracticed I was after not dieting for five years. And so it was, uh, it was a pretty big deal for me to say, okay, I'm going to take away that one snack. And, uh, and, you know, I didn't die, you know, it worked. And, and then my body got used to it. So I wasn't even hungry there. So I was able to take away another snack. That's how I lost 10 to 12 pounds in the last three months. And then I mentioned to you last week that, you know, my, my, my last little bit of eating is sometimes really, really late at night when I'm up reading. And I just, for the, you know, since that one night this week, I told you guys, I, I swung my legs over my bed three different times, getting ready to get out of bed, to go get a little midnight snack. And I kept pulling myself back in saying, you know, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And and now I don't even have that hunger urge. So very much like Tracy was describing, you know, your body will acclimate and, somebody who is even type two diabetic or pre-diabetic and hypoglycemic and reactive hypoglycemic. If you just start increasing those windows of fasting, just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes at a time, do it, do it. And you know, just take a 15 minute stretch for an entire week before you increase the time another 15 minutes. That's exactly why we have obesity and type two diabetes and those kinds of things now as a culture. You have to let your body work its way through that. And and then the entire physiology of your cells, as I described earlier, will change. With medications, that's where you have to respect the, the cause and effect of medication. So, you know, just like anybody like myself who has to take a thyroid med, you know, levothyroxine in the morning, you take it, you're not supposed to eat for 30 to 60 minutes. So that kind of propels me forward a little bit in the day. Uh, if you have something like Adderall, which is just prescription meth, time-released meth, you know, the reason meth addicts are, are thin and heroin addicts because they forget to eat, they're just not hungry. So you're getting that same effect, which is where, you know, Fenfen and Meridia and all those, you know, dieting drugs come from. They're, they're just massive appetite suppressants because they're, they're you know, getting into your, your, your serotonin and dopamine systems. And so you just don't feel hungry. You answered your own question, Steve, by saying, I'm, I'm eating all of my food kind of at night. So I'm kind of intermittent fasting. Thanks, Roseanne. See ya. Um, But I'm not tracking my food at night. I'm not logging it. I don't think I'm eating that much, but I'm gaining body fat. You as a nutrition coach know that if you're gaining body fat, you are definitely eating more than you think, even if it's not every night. And so, you know, first of all, I, I think that's a good tool to use if, if, if you're going to stay on Adderall to say, okay, I'm just not hungry in the, in the first half of the day. I can, I can stretch my meals out, but I would definitely put some kind of structure to what you're eating later so that you can you know, end up, you know, where you want body comp wise. Yeah. Well, what I did was I started getting up earlier and doing cardio Mm. and that stimulated me enough to get back to my normal breakfast. 
but still then I, I ate because I was a little bit hungry, but I ate more food than normal. But then I thought, well, I'm going to structure weightlifting late at night. And at least I'm not in the kitchen <laughs> picking it stuff. Yeah. So and, and that's, that was, that's what I'm working on now. Well, and that's um, an important part still of kind of an intermittent fast. In, any time of usually trained and, and then able to eat a big meal afterwards in any kind of time restricted eating you you are definitely in a precarious position to overeat you know especially if it's work you know like like tracy was talking about if you've got a client who does time restricted eating and then it causes them to binge well then we got a problem we got we got to refine this tool in some way and so that becomes uh, you know, it's almost like when, when I do something super late, like if I'm speaking somewhere or doing something and I miss dinner and I go home and it's nine or 10 o'clock at night and now I'm starving, I, I probably eat twice as many calories in those situations because I'm so hungry unless I very intentionally back up, practice some level of mindfulness, track my calories, pre-plant, get all my servings how I want and get out of the kitchen. Like if I just am left to my own devices, longer stretches of time will make me overeat. And that's, that, that is the real challenge of doing this one little step at a time therapeutically. So your body adjusts, it's, it's not to punish yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's to work on those health factors and the, that cellular adaptation happens very, very slowly over time. Thanks. All right, guys. Well, uh, we, are, we are really fast. Yeah, go ahead, Tiffany. Really fast. It's super fast. So I did last year, I did 24 hour fast, 48 hour fast and 72 hour fast, did all three. And I was doing them, um, I don't know, once a week. Point of the story. My question is, from an autophagy standpoint, I noticed that they, uh, they say about 20 odd hours is a good benchmark for that whenever but no, I did this for months, several months for the adaptation to take effect. Um, so is there any information on where autophagy really starts to help if it starts to kick in as far as the length of the fast? Or is that, like I said, like you said, an adaptation of like months, maybe I know genetics play into that, but just curious if there was a benchmark, is it 24 hours or something like that? Yeah, it is. It, it's a good question to end on because it, it's it's so applicable. It's definitely the months of adaptation that mean more than anything. What what that twenty four hour benchmark is, is is if you eat nothing, it takes about twenty four hours to reach pure ketosis. So it takes about twenty four hours to work through all of your blood products, you know, blood lipids, blood glucose, and your liver glycogen. So around the eight to 12 hour mark, you start to see ketone bodies, you know, appear because now your liver is turning, um, you know, fatty acids into, into ketone bodies. And then it just keeps accelerating and accelerating and accelerating. And, and around 24 hours is when there's just nothing left in your body except long-term autolytic sources like, like body fat and, and amino acids. So but you, you can't, you can't obviously not any, eat anything forever. And so it's not like, okay, I've reached 24 hours. Now I'm not going to eat anything for seven days. It's a matter of if you pick that 24 hour window once a week or twice a week, or just an eight and 16 hour window, whatever you decide to do, it's going to take you three to four months for your body to say, okay, that's my new norm. Now it's easier. And you're getting all those physiological anti-aging health benefits. So, you know, that's, that's why even in the course of those three to four months, you know, start slow, build yourself up to where you think is a good place to stay. Cause again, this is not a gimmicky way to lose body fat. It's not a, it's not a way, like I said, to just, you know, crush yourself. It, it's how can I marry the best health and anti-aging benefits to work, how I want to manage my body comp. And if I give myself a three to four month window to make that bridge, then, you know, I know I'll be there and I know it'll be more sustainable. How, how about water intake? Water intake? Yeah. Like during, during something like that, should you increase or decrease or stay the same? Definitely don't decrease, but I mean, ho hopefully maintain a good amount. So to your point, you know, you are, 
getting rid of a lot of extra metabolic byproducts. And so it's, it's definitely good to have a higher amount of water. You don't have to, you know, drown yourself, but it's, it's, it's definitely something you want to maintain a very good amount. Drinking some water throughout too in the beginning process, if you're feeling hungry, can help you feel a little saturated temporarily as long as, as well as going on like short distance walk. So when someone's trying to transition out of, you know, frequent eating to fasted, like fasted eating, um, and they have those beginning stages of hunger, one thing they can combat that is, you know, maybe have a, a glass of water and going for a five or 10 minute walk to kind of help curb that appetite. So they're not necessarily, um, uh, creating those old habits of snacking and frequent eating. Okay. Tiffany, do you have one last follow-up there? Um, yeah, I noticed after so long, they say you can, if you're actually deep enough into ketosis, you almost taste it mm-hmm. in your breath, like the ketones. I could literally, sure. when I'd hit like a 40 hour mark, I could literally taste it. My breath was like acetone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's so crazy. But like, I could think really probably clearer than I ever did. If I did that again, I'd probably cure my ADHD. Steve would have never hired me because I wouldn't have been crazier than him. So it's a good thing I don't do that anymore. Yeah. When I, when I have done ketogenic diets, you do notice that. And I won't rehash this entire story, but I, I did do a five day pure water fast. And you, you, you get through that ketosis kind of process quickly, obviously 24, 48 hours. And then um, it's, it's a whole different world. Like when, when you go without food, like we're talking about a 24 hour fast where you still eat at least one meal in that day, like dinner to dinner, like that's, that's a really good gold standard for intermittent fasting, but to go for multiple days, you've gone two and three days without eating. I've gone five days with nothing but water. And that's an entirely different discipline. That's you, you, you get to know some things that you never knew before how your body works and so forth and and just how, how chill and clear you can be. But uh, I'll save that story for another day as a refresher. You guys, this was really good. I appreciate you guys all being here and I'll see you uh, next week.